Hello, fellow Starfleet cadets, and welcome back to the Star Trek Book Club podcast, the podcast in which we undertake the paramount task of discussing in publication order all of the Star Trek novels. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have an equally paramount discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Trek fan since 1976. That would be me. We also have two intermediate-level casual fans who have seen several episodes of the various series but have not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time, it's the wise Danny Saladon. Hello, Danny. Hello. The witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Good evening. And we also have our cadet-level fan who has seen little of the original series or the various different TV series and has read none of these books. And this time, it is the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, it's me. I'm here. This time we're discussing the first piece of original Trek fiction, though not the first actual book published, with Mac Reynolds' 1968 short novel, Mission to Horatius. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Star Trek Mission to Horatius, written by Mac Reynolds for Whitman Books in 1968, reprinted by Pocket Books in 1999. As of this recording in April of 2018, this title is currently out of print, 210 pages. Now the blurb on the back is non-existent <laughs> so <laughs> that we copy. cannot tell you we cannot tell you the story behind it and that's perfectly fine so let me just tell you some of the story behind this particular book as we said it isn't actually the first book of star trek fiction to be produced in fact it may not even be the third the very first was of course james blish's eponymous star trek which was published by Bantam Books in January of 1967, and which featured adaptations of seven first-season episodes. His second book, Star Trek II, no relation to Wrath of Khan, came out in February of 1968, and that's where my research into Mission to Horatius hits a stag. All I can discover is that it was published in 1968. None of the sources I've consulted give the month. Both Memory Alpha and Memory Beta, the two wikis for the Star Trek universe, claim it was predated only by the first of James Belish's books, though. So, as far as we know, this is the second one. What we do know is that it's the first book of original Trek fiction, though it's, again, not the first aimed at adult readers. Whitman Publishing was a subsidiary of Western Publishing, which is also the parent company of Gold Key Comics, and Gold Key had already been producing a high-quality Star Trek comic since 1967. And since Whitman did hardcover original books like this, based on various TV and movie franchises for kids, it seemed like a good fit. Mac Reynolds, who up to that point had had a long career writing science fiction in various different other genres, was tapped to write it at a time when his own fortunes were not so great. In a memoir published after his death in 1983, he would describe Mission to Horatius as his bestseller. So if you've got a science fiction author saying this was his bestseller, uh, that tells you something. (laughs) Just before his death, just before his death, this is the sad part, his agent negotiated a new contract with Tor Books, so several of his books were published in the 80s posthumously. So some of his best work didn't come out until after he died. And then this got re-released in the uh, 90s. But among other things, Reynolds was known for having written the first science fiction series with an African-American protagonist, the North Africa series. So at least one of the objections raised to this novel was rather surprising. 
There were, in fact, a lot of objections, most of them coming from Gene Roddenberry. Go figure. It, all it was began. a day that ended in Y, so Gene Roddenberry had to object to what was going on in Star Trek. Basically, it all began when producer John Meredith Lucas contacted Roddenberry and Desilu Business Affairs to warn them that the book was, quote, not technically in bad taste, but is extremely <laughs> dull, and even considering the juvenile market, badly written, unquote. There were several other objections, such as the book referring to Sulu at one point as a bland-faced small oriental, which it didn't do in the final copy, and the fact that Uhura at one point sings a spiritual and is referred to as a negress. Mind you, this is something that the series itself would do later on, but in a different context. Roddenberry threatened to pull the deal from Whitman rather than see the franchise harmed, and while this led to corrections being made, he still wrote a five-page document outlining his problems with this book. So, yeah. It's hard to say what sales were like of the original edition, despite Reynolds calling it his bestseller, but it held a high enough regard in the heart of Trek fans that original editions to this day go for about $100. Wow. Now, was this five-page document about the final published version or the draft that he read that he requested? The draft that he read, and I think about the final published version. Okay, so it sounds, version... Like a, sounds like he won several of those things. Yeah, he did, and yet somehow it still wasn't up to uh, snuff. It was still up to snuff enough, though. Boy, there's a lot of alliteration. <laughs> then in 1999, John Ordover, the editor of the Pocket books range of Trek books, decided to celebrate that range's 20th anniversary by doing a facsimile edition, which is what I have here. And I believe that one is also now out of print, even though it's more readily available than the original. You can generally get it in used bookstores for like 20 bucks. You can get it on Amazon for 20 bucks. The original still goes for a lot, about 100 even though these things are notorious for falling apart because they weren't bound very well in the originals. <laughs> So, quite a bit there. So let's talk about this one. First impressions of this book. Uh, Dalton, let's go with you first. Um, having only seen probably uh, a handful of the original series, and then I've seen the new films. Mm -hmm. So that is my basis on who these people are. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, it was... It was, it was interesting to see them come alive on the page okay. um not being super familiar with them right. um they still they still seem to all like play their roles though mm -hmm. um i don't know i did, did we say this was intended for adults oh i didn't talk about that did it's i a... it's intended for children okay because it yeah, it's for a juvenile audience. Okay. This is intended for kids. Sophomoric, if you will. Yeah, yes. no, because it's very much written in a, in a way that is, uh, yeah, it's, it's easy, it's breezy, it's beautiful. It's, um, it's cover girl. No, yeah, it's uh, definitely something, you know, that I would read as a teenager, and this would, this would make me want to read more. Okay. Uh, and, and see more from the characters. Um some of some of the the nomenclature with the planets was a little annoying, but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, so as we'll we get there. Discussed in the uh, past. Oh, you have no idea. Um, it gets but, even worse. Oh yeah, I mean, I can only imagine. I'm true to the but, original series, and that the nomenclature with the planets is always really annoying. Well, yeah. that's something we've experienced with the other books we've read. So, this is true. Um, this is true. 
At least we don't have, you know, planets named Iridius because they happen to be dry. No, yeah. but we have B- Bavaria because they're German. They're German, yeah. And we have, well, they have so German. Uh, Neolithia. And Neolithia with the stone men. Stone men. And yeah. But but you, you know, it was it was a quick read. It was an easy, you know, it was fun. It was fun. It was okay. Allison? I actually thought it was a really good time. Really? I uh, famously really hate reading adaptations, so if it were an adaptation of an episode that I had seen, I would have been almost physically and psychologically unable to read it as a personal eccentricity. So I actually thought this was a lot of fun as Mm -hmm. an original adventure and much... um, I'm not used to reading original stories of uh, TV shows or films where I'm familiar with the cast already. Right, right. So I don't know if it improved it. It was very easy for me to imagine the cast delivering these lines. Sure, sure. Um, but I thought it was a very fun teenage adventure. I mean, not not teen characters, but sort of you know young adult uh, level mm-hmm. adventure. Okay. Yeah. And Danny? Yeah, I, I I also had problems with not knowing. Who this was written for? Uh, I wasn't sure if, it's, if if this is a young adult, if it's for children. But then if it's for children, it's a little too. It's a little too involved. But overall, the story feels like like an extended Star Trek episode, a, kind of like a like a two parter, three parter mm-hmm. kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, all around it, it was it was a good time. Okay. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this book, we'll go ahead and give you the best synopsis we can. The Starship Enterprise is told that they have to go to the Horatius system, which has been settled by non-Federation groups not too long ago. And the problem with this is everybody on board is starting to come down with something called Cafard, which actually is a condition. It's when a human being is out in space for too terribly long and they can't feel ground beneath their feet and sky above them. And McCoy is worried that this is going to run through the ship like wildfire unless they get some R&R very quickly. So they've got to get through these missions pretty fast. The only problem is they have no idea where this distress signal has come from of the three planets in the Horatius system. So they've got to go to each one and finally find which one sent it and find out that that one has been dominating the other two. Meanwhile, there's a mouse on board, and he provides a framing story. Yeah, we'll talk about that too. And of course, the last planet they go to is the one where everything's happening. Exactly, and that would be the aforementioned... Bavaria or whatever it is. Thinking of young adult. It's Bavaria with a Y. Bavaria with a Y. very different. And like Mithra is where they are, are have a religious oligarchy based on LSD <laughs> in a children's book. Good times. I mean, it is 1967, but 68 rather, but still in a children's book. Even then, it's kind of... It's not endorsed. <laughs> no, that's probably what Roddenberry had trouble with. Ah. But, all right, so where do we start? We should probably start with the original crew. Because there aren't that many new characters in this book, and that's almost a blessing. And the ones that are, it's okay if you can't tell them apart. <laughs> I mean, what's the, the, the kid? Ganga? Granga? Froyline? Grang. Grang of the yeah, Wolf Grang, Yes, yes. Really, there are only two alien characters you need to keep up with, and then the, all the other 
Enterprise characters who are not the regular core, you don't need to care which one is which. This is true. Yeah. This is true. But none of them die. And which none... surprised me a lot. Yeah. I was waiting for yeah. Someone should have, but it's a children's book. They can get high on LSD all they want, but <laughs> well, they just can't die. Who die. But then we're told it's okay to commit genocide against some, which is another issue later on in the book. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who are wondering where this fits into Star Trek chronology, even though I don't think anyone cared, uh, the star date is given as 3475.3, which puts it between Who Mourns for Adonais and The Deadly Years, which are both second season stories. And boy, does this read like a second season story for those of us that are familiar with the show. it's It's got that feel to it. It's some the bits that are good are good, and the bits that are terrible are really, really terrible. But as far as the regulars go... How do we feel uh, Reynolds handles Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and all of the others? I felt he did the voices very well of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Uhura. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to a lesser extent, Sulu. And to a far lesser extent, Chekhov. Oh, yes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Sulu was described as speaking sourly three or four times, which is a very specific adjective to repeat that (laughs) many (laughs) times. But with... The, the, with Kirk and Spock and Bones and Uhura, I thought there was some terrific funny banter in here that was very true to character and mm-hmm. their own specific brands of humor. They weren't yeah. just generic zingers. Exactly. So I think that's why I liked this book so much, is I found it to be three or four episodes worth of amusing banter among those four. Okay, you can see that. Uh, Dalton, you're probably less familiar with those characters. Less familiar with all of them, but uh, from what I understand of each of them, the the book did a good job of getting who they were. Mm-hmm. I I really felt the commanding nature of Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, Spock being a little more in his head and thinking about things. Um, yeah, it it felt it felt right. It, mm-hmm. it didn't feel like these were totally different people than I've seen depicted. Yes. Um, it, it fit. Yeah, it's not like reading the uh, the British comic strip of the series that was done before the uh, show even aired in Britain. Oh, yeah, that was interesting. At some point we'll have to talk about that. Um, Danny, you know a little bit more about these characters, obviously. How do you feel they were depicted? I, I agree with Allison. The, the, the way that the bridge officers were depicted is, is very good. Uh one problem I did have was when they landed on the first planet, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Kirk is trying to have Chekhov and Sulu stay their weapons, and just the interaction seems really bizarre yeah. com- compared to what I know of the show. When he's upbraiding Chekhov for having his weapon on kill? Yeah. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. Especially that line, throw your sidearm on stun effect. Well... Weird that that's weird just because of the terminology. Yeah, but for Kirk to have to say that to check off of all people, Kirk doesn't and, usually have to say, "Now don't go around killing everyone the way you ordinarily do." Check off, exactly. check off thing. Yeah, it's usually a red shirt that would be that hot headed, and not one of the bridge crew. I, I think the the author may have done that just to highlight the 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 severity of the situation, or you know, there's something serious going on. Be careful with your weapon. Yes. I, I 
support yeah. that now. Mm. Or, you know, to underline the prime directive of, right. of not interfering. Which, Which is called never, what here? It is called. They, call, they don't call it that. General rule number one. They call General it, order number General one. General order number one. Yeah. Which is actually what it is called in the original series. Yeah. It doesn't really morph into prime directive until, I think, the movies. Um, I'd have to track that down, obviously, and I'm sure somebody listening will be able to track that down for us because we we know you know more much more about these things than we do. The a really important thing is that whatever they call it, they violate it early and often and habitually. <laughs> yes, so I mean, course. we still got the spirit of yeah, what we I'm, came to know as the prime directive exactly. to be thrown down and danced upon. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting here is that Kirk seems a lot more willing to try to subscribe to it than he is in the series because when he finds out that Grang for instance has stowed away aboard he actually does say let's turn the ship around got to take that boy home and McCoy says no 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 we don't have enough time yeah and having somebody new on board might actually keep everyone from having this cafard business yeah Kirk would ordinarily be the one saying, oh, we'll just take the kid along. What are we going to do? Leave him here and Spock and Bones will be saying, no, we can't take him. Right. And yet it's still in keeping with the character, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much um, the way Shatner depicted Kirk in the second season. It was very authoritarian and almost kind of snippy at times, especially the way he snipes at Spock constantly for... uh, so many zingers against Spock. That that I feel they did capture in this book. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Spock, I think you'd find your own funeral fascinating. <laughs> Certain details. And the mm. devil. I mean, no, Lucifer. And Spock says, yes, ah, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt I would find him fascinating. Exactly. See, I, uh, true confessions here, I've always hated Kirk, which mm. I know is not a popular position. Ooh. And I thought this was actually a pretty <laughs> likable Kirk. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like Bones and Spock. What's the matter with me? But you were more familiar with Kirk from the movies, right, than from the series? Both, original series and movie Kirk, yes. I appreciate that Shatner brings a lot of humor to, especially original series, um, before he's kind of sort of overlarged himself with gravitas in the movies. So I appreciate it's, you know, skillful, but I just, I don't like the Kirk persona, and I thought that this is a very good way of showing Kirk's humor and way of managing situations that doesn't emphasize his sort of, periodic overbearingness and overconfidence so it just shows him managing the situations very well yeah exactly and we don't see that babe of the week persona that everyone thinks kirk has either there isn't a love interest in this story at all which is which really surprised me because i thought that bavarian babe was obvious waiting for anna love alien that's her name yeah yeah were there any Bavarians who complained about no the cultural stereotype? Because that's the one that made it in. Because I'm pretty sure not all Bavarians are Nazis. You know, well, the hashtag for our episode, not all Bavarians. Right. <laughs> well, given that the series had, at this point, already done, you know, basically done space Nazi Nazis. Planet, yeah. yeah, they did Nazi planet already. They'd also done Roman planet, which is why when they're thrown into the Colosseum at the very end, it's like, oh, they're doing bread and circuses again. Yeah. It's almost exactly that episode all over again. But it moves in that um, there are very few places they overstay the interest of the scene. It's actually much more episodic than I expected. I mean, yeah. you would think that in a TV series this would be, you know, more like a three or four parter because the the vignettes are so specific. But you know, I I did not see it coming when after the they won the first fight in the arena, that was round one, and there were several more to go. <laughs> so there is a very 
if, if you're not looking ahead too far, not trying too hard as I was not, there are some nice sort of surprises yeah. as you go where it bops along at a really nice clip. Mm-hmm. Even on um, that first planet, and I keep forgetting the name of the first planet too. Yeah, Neolithia. Um, when they're told that they're going to be killed and it turns out it's more of a psychic attack, that was a bit of a surprise. That was the only thing that seemed a little bit randomly dropped like a hot potato. Oh, it's ESP. All right, we're leaving now. (laughs) I actually thought that much more would come back around about that plot point and that particular character and how he was doing it and that he would actually be, as a leader, using technology he denied to the rest of the civilization, but nothing, we're out of here, we have the kid. Yeah, we have the kid, that's we all we We have the needed. MVP high school wrestler, we're, we're ready to go. <laughs> we're ready to go drop LSD with some clergymen. Exactly. Actually, monks or Southern Baptists, I'm not sure which, they kept calling them brother so-and-so. Yes, so yes, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> I was like, I was back at church with my dad, and it's like, oh, brother William, and it's like, oh, for God's sake. Brother William would never encourage you to drop LSD every no. day. How Far too no. excessive a usage. Far too excessive a usage. The one character that doesn't ring true, and now that I've read that complaint that um, Runberry had about Reynolds referring to him this way, I can kind of see it, is Sulu. Sulu is off. Yeah. Sulu is entirely off yeah. from the very start, even with Mickey. Yeah, there's, there's something just very sarcastic very like he like he has no respect for authority kind of feel about him i I don't i don't know what it is though you can argue that there's a long-running writing problem with sulu wherein everything we know and love about him is created more by the performance of george takei than the uneven inconsistent characterization of how he's written and since we don't have that person here it comes off as kind of weird i could see that but i can't imagine george takei delivering these lines no no. whereas i could imagine walter koenig delivering the few lines that chekhov has in this story right they're uninspired and then michelle nichols is definitely there on the page there there of course is the line about sulu what's that bulge in your pocket. <laughs> yeah. like, oh my. The one yeah, Slipping it yeah. in under the sensors. Yeah. Yeah. It's young adult. Yeah. Um, yeah this is on the adults. So yeah. Yeah. Sex and drugs. We've got that and we've got the LSD. Young adults are that. just learning about bulges under tunics. About <laughs> so, it's subtle and restrained though. It's not yeah. overtly crass. It's, it's, it's an age appropriate body yeah. joke. Sulu, though, reminds me more of first season Geordie LaForge. Because I found myself, because Geordie LaForge had that constantly joking but kind of sharp edge Mm -hmm. to his delivery in the first season, they lost by the time they made him chief engineer. And I think he lost something in the character by having him lose that. Trying to make him sort of like the awkward, angry nerd in some ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which is something LeVar Burton hated, I'm sure, but... In this case, Sulu's in that and doing all sorts of saying weird things. And then the damn mouse. With the rat. <laughs> Am I the only one who likes the rat? Well, let's talk about They're the rat. Okay, I like how they came back to the rat. Do you I like really? the framing device of the yeah. rat. You yeah. do? Okay, what do you like about it? Well, it was, an, you know, this whole time they're bringing up Cafard syndrome or whatever mm-hmm. the hell it's called. And I'm like, okay, and, and, what's, <laughs> all right, if Bones yeah. keeps bringing this up. It's got to play a part somewhere. 
and I like how it, it came back to him hiding the rat as a means of making people on the ship have something to do. Okay. It played out differently than I expected in that I thought that when they returned from the final planet, they'd find the Enterprise and murderous mayhem with people chasing each yes. other around with weapons and whatnot and sort of an ultra-violent Benny Hill <laughs> sort of scenario <laughs> where they had not managed to contain the Kafar. Um, and that didn't happen. They found a more peaceable um, situation. And the yeah, sax was still playing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The Kafar story uh, worked out a little more. Uh, looked worked out a little differently, but uh, they they uh, they didn't take anyone or anything of significance from the medieval LSD planet. Right. And I thought they were going to go back there and find a cure for bubonic plague, and that yeah. worked out differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah so That's kind was, of where I thought it was going to. But. Yeah. So it was it was different than what you expected from the planets and Kafard and the rat. It was sort of a pleasant surprise. It wasn't anything mind-blowing or psychedelic, if you will. Okay. But, you know, kept you on your toes. And right. I thought it was consistent with, um, with the, the best characterizations of McCoy. You know, okay. you think that, oh, yeah. that he is this button-down grump, but he is yeah. actually has a lot of has a lot of humor and ingenuity. Yeah, well. there wasn't a lot of grumpy McCoy here at all. It was more very um, concerned. McCoy. Yeah, very concerned, paternal, professional McCoy, and it's certainly not. I'm just an old country doctor. Not that characterization yeah. Yeah. of it. But what did you think about the uh, programming device, Danny? Uh, you mean Mickey? Yeah. I, yeah, I thought it was a good way to, to kind of bookend the, the storyline. Mm-hmm. It's it, it started off as, I don't really know where they're going with this, but mm-hmm. it, it seems it seems cute. And then towards the end, it's like, oh no, he's he's going to be killed. And <laughs> no, it's just... It's but they just... do kill him. They do end up killing him. Do they? Really? Yeah. The second time. Because the first time they think they've killed him, and then this, uh, they find out, oh my god, he's still alive, we've got to do this all over again. We've got to uh, gas the, the ship or whatever. But he survives it. He, he survives the gassing of the ship. Yes. But then the second time, because they chase him down, don't they? No, I, I thought... You're I thought crushing he, my soul, I thought he made it. I thought no, McCoy no, no, I had him he made like, it. in an oxygen tent and just kept him there until... No, I don't think that happened. Alright, let me double check this. Because, let's see, the shouting continued. Now they could begin to make out the words, Mickey, Mickey! As the door at the door, Kirk exclaimed, they've gone off their rockers. The doctor was immediately behind him. Yeoman Janice Rand, and it was nice to see her too, yes. came hurrying up, her face flushed with excitement. Captain, it's Mickey! They saw Mickey again down in the ship's chapel. He's alive. Mickey's still alive. Don't be ridiculous. But she was gone. It was all-out warfare now. Uh, the rat had been, uh, before the campaign against Mickey had been pursued coldly, carefully, and without passion, the rat had been a potential danger, a threat to the whole ship, and was to be destroyed ruthlessly. Even so, there had been considerable sympathy for the little rodent. Now it was different. An emotional crisis seemed to seize upon every man and woman aboard. The time and interest of everyone, from ship's officers to messmen, were devoted to the finding and destruction of Mickey. And it continues on until... I'm almost certain they found it. In the second week of the wild hunt for him, he was knocked down by half a dozen phasers on stun effect when he ventured into an ambush in the compartment 8. 
He was quickly rushed to the ship's waste matter converter. The men who had approached and handled him were rushed to the sickbay for immediate decontamination. The, yeah, they put him in the waste uh, decontamination. De- uh, waste converter. Wow. Throw him in the trash. Yeah, he's dead. Okay, so so I think I, I may have missed this point, but what was the point of of hunting him down? Was it that there was a chance that he might spread the plague? They yeah. thought that he possibly yeah. had the plague, so they needed to find him to test him. But McCoy had trained him to dance like a plague-affected rat, <laughs> so, so that he would provide sport and entertainment yeah. For the tr- crew, so they wouldn't be bored stuff. because they would be afraid for their lives. They're all going to die yeah. of the plague. Got it. Or they would be quarantined and not allowed to land while they were treated for plague and while the so cure was recreated. So They yeah. killed him instead of testing him. Yeah. And then Bones had to say, well, actually, Which gives you this image of Mickey running down the hallway and saying, Hello, my honey. Hello, my honey. <laughs> <laughs> So it's the rat or the crew. Pick one. Yeah. One has to die. Well, because it said that Bones had sedated like 40 members of the crew yeah. to keep them from going uh, rat shit, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I got the impression that he was stunned, but you're right. They cast him aside after he Yeah, they throw him in the trash. I was entertained by the idea that Sulu would think that a brown rat was an exotic creature. Yes, yeah, yeah, and that's also not Sulu. This is somebody that used to work in the ship's botany department. No, this is somebody that actually knows a bit more about that sort of thing. I don't know, it kind of works with our sort of modern fascination with different kinds of dinosaurs that we would have run screaming from and we actually encountered them when they were on the Earth. I suppose so. Nostalgia for the unknown. I also wonder if Doris Atkins is somebody that Reynolds knew. Because usually in these books, whenever you have a character that's just kind of there to say a few lines, mm-hmm. but that would normally be given to someone nameless, mm-hmm. if they're given a name, there's somebody that the author actually knows. So I'm wondering, because she actually has a little bit of a uh, strong part, including doing the whole thing about um, she did what anyone would be expected to do. She screamed. Oh, it was like worse than that. What was it? Something oh, yeah, I was like... wondering how you'd react to that. Well, what is it that um, Jenny says, I'm reading this perfectly nice book, and then someone comes along and stomps my ovaries? Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> overall, I really enjoyed the book. It was something like, uh, like it was a primal instinct that goes back to the beginning of time. Um, yes, that was it. Very feminine squeal. It wasn't even a scream. That would be too mm-hmm. dignified. It had to be more more sign than that. Yeah, like, thanks, Ace. That was great. Yeah. Really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, and it does, well, my but note was... I, honestly, I was just surprised you didn't die. Yeah, and I said I honestly can't tell you whether he's being sexist or whether he's giving a, her a backhanded compliment by saying she's doing so despite being a veteran. Because he does say that. I thought it was maybe making fun of the convention. I'm not sure. Possibly. And Remember, that, I can't tell when someone's being super sexist or when someone's making fun of yeah. sexist tropes, and I tend yeah. to usually think it's ridicule or parody. Yeah. And then, of course, it always turns out to be a Frank Miller thing. So, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> it was mercifully brief. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure he's doing a Frank Miller thing. I think it's. Yeah, he's probably making fun of it. It's not a recurring thing. No, no. What is recurring, and I don't know if this happened in y'all's copies, (laughs) constant references to the Clinton Empire. The what? The Clinton Clinton. Empire? Clinton. I I had the word 
die uh, rendered as the. The. Yes. And then one memorable event, something, the phrase something be. Uh, the phrase was something like the fact of the matter mm-hmm. and it was the fart of the matter <laughs> <laughs> that was the best one somehow I didn't get that one oh, but yeah we, <laughs> we got the Klington Empire a couple of times and I thought it was just a misprint the first time but then it happened again there it is page 35 uh, that's interesting you're looking at the print edition I assumed it was the OCR scan no 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 that one was actually in the print uh, Starfleet Command is not as yet ready to expand in this direction is aware of the fact that if either the Romulan Confederation, which is an interesting way of putting it, yes. or the Clinton Empire thought we were doing so, they might hurry their own exploration. And no, it happens a couple times. So it's like, Clinton Empire. Oh, gosh. Someone someone was not editing this book properly. That's probably something Roddenberry put in that five-page document. I think the, the editor made the mistake because... Judging by the the references to the show, you could tell the writer knows has watched the show. He really has. So, yeah, yeah. like there's a reference like uh, Space Station K eight, and there's a few other things too. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They get name checked at one point too, and uh, he knows Scotty as well. We get even Scotty doing the whole "I cannot give you any more, Captain." That whole thing that he does all the time. So he knows this. Let's go on to another point, shall we? No, we're not blaming the writer for this. We're blaming the editor. <laughs> okay, we'll blame ah. the editor for that one. So the regulars, except for Sulu, and occasionally Scott going off in a really Scottish accent. But how about the rest of it? The depiction of the Enterprise crew when they're experiencing Kafard and they've apparently read every single book in the Enterprise yeah. library computer and have watched every film it's like okay even in star trek enterprise you get the sense that their library computer has more than enough to keep them sustained for a while busy yeah Hmm. that was amusingly done the recurring gag of her as a five-string guitar and (laughs) periodically at the end of each vignette she breaks one yeah like like that's their sanity slowly slipping away with every with every string breaking that's like closer to disaster a simple device i thought it was a funny gag yes not not consistent with maybe the canon of how much information they would have at their disposal like they indicate that mccoy would have a complete history of medical knowledge in all languages library yes. and they would only have you know 10 movies to watch right um, but no, I, <laughs> yeah well i guess it was even, it was an amusing gag yeah and given that it is 1968 it's hard to imagine oh they'd probably have at least a version of wikipedia aboard the ship yeah. and that and probably several times that much information although they do talk about how someone was running different classes including music classes yes and they all quit because no one cared anymore so yeah. i thought the indication was that you know they really are perhaps suffering from the kafar where it's more of an issue of malaise than running out of material that's exactly what it is and that may be what it is that they they feel like they've read every single thing a thousand times and they haven't they're just over it yeah, exactly. I, I do find it interesting that they're suffering from this thing of Kafard, and yet Star Trek Enterprise, you have that season-long storyline where they don't really get to go off 
the ship very often, and yet they don't end up having that same sort of problem. So McCoy decides to cheer them up with the fear of death. Yes. <laughs> a game of catch the rat. Which is what any good ship's doctor would do. <laughs> yes, and, and he is associated with recreation. In fact, that's something that the um, Diane DeWayne books will later establish, if I'm not mistaken, that recreation um, reports directly to medical. Because it is a function of obviously keeping well, everybody on yeah. board. And he turns up in that extraordinary leisure suit in his first appearance in Star Trek: The Motion Picture. <laughs> I will never be able to bleach from my mind. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the worst crime of recreational fashion of all time. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> he's just been to a 23rd century disco and he's really pissed off. <laughs> he's superlatively pissed off. Yes, you can yeah. imagine him smelling of high karate cologne. Yes. <laughs> All right, what else? The Mr. of the Spocks. <laughs> it wasn't until the third time that he said something along those lines that I laughed out loud because it, 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 it was funny. Mr. of the Spocks. Oh, Mr. Yes. of the Spocks. Yes, yes. <laughs> Captain of the Kirks. Captain yes. of the Kirks. <laughs> Which defies the convention that the more times you repeat the joke, the less funny it is. It yes. makes me finally won you over. Yeah, strangely I, enough. I read this under the impression, based on the foreword, that it was the first Star Trek novel. It was mm-hmm. not an adaptation. Right. And there's an, a reference in there to bison and buffalo that I thought was supposed to be a callback to the pilot. Not the unaired one, but the first episode that actually aired with oh. the salt creature. Yeah. Where the husband of the, or the supposed husband of the, what turns out to be the salt creature, oh, yeah. it kind of launches in soliloquy about the buffalo, you know, oh. about how there used to be, you know, thousands yes. of them roaming the plain. I thought he was specifically putting in a quick buffalo bison reference to call back to he that, could've. but I might have read it he, more than was there. He mentions Pike, so certainly he knows the lore of the show enough that he probably would have understood that reference. Though bearing in mind that they really didn't have the ability to, you know, review episodes, they might have watched them in rerun, but. There was never any recording unless it was, you know, putting a tape recorder right by the television like I used to do when I was a kid. Yeah. Which you talk about the uh, crew's lack of access to entertainment. It is interesting to think about in 1968 the reference for what kind of entertainment you can watch over and over would be different. Yes. You don't have television on demand in the same way. You have right. you have that for, for written works, but... Films are maybe they're aired on television, but you only may have an opportunity every year or so to see a film again, a TV show, maybe never again after its original season is aired. So they don't really have the concept of an entertainment library, perhaps in the same way. And for that matter, books would be the same way. Because whenever we see someone reading a book on the original series, it's quite obviously like microfiche, but it's in some sort of electronic form, which would have been conceptually available to people in 1968. Hmm. I, I enjoyed um, Kirk's annoyance at Scott's, I mean, at Spock's encyclopedic knowledge of Earth history, culture, and um, geography, that he knows all of these <laughs> obscure facts. I thought it was a nice, amusing call out, too. You certainly know a lot about this tiny planet that you, were never, you weren't even born on, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> and how does he, he reply? He says something along the lines of, oh, only a cursory uh, yes. review <laughs> would be sufficient. <laughs> Obscure corners of mythology and religion. Yes. Exactly. I thought they were going somewhere a little bit more profound with history of religion and the 
the neo neolithic planet versus a medieval planet versus yeah. a 20th century planet yeah. i thought that they were going to arrive at a place where the neolithic planet was the colonists who had been there the longest and actually worked backwards from technology and decided that they thought this was the best way to live and that that was the trajectory that all three planets were on Mm -hmm. but they drew a conclusion that the three groups of colonists arrived with three different sets of ideals of what they wanted Mm -hmm. to go back to but i thought they were going to say that they were in just three different stages of the same journey yeah i think i described one group of them as the space amish because they kind of were that yeah i think that was neolithia in fact They've made the conscious decision to reject technology. Mm-hmm. I thought it was strange that it took them so long to realize the doppelgangers were clones. <laughs> well, that I might mean, have been, you know, Mac Reynolds giving the kitties a little taste of dramatic irony. Something. Getting it before the adults But I mean, do. the damn word doppelganger. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that they call them that. Well, they know right away something is up that they couldn't possibly have increased their population in that amount of time. They know yes. that there's something different and strange. But yeah. they should have been able to jump to a conclusion faster once they heard That's, them call them I'm doppelgangers. Su- surprised it's... that they concluded, that, well, I guess it's okay to kill them all then. <laughs> Which is... you know, they're not real people. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was just like, okay, I'll just... I'll just suspend my belief there for a minute. Well, you usually have to, even with this older stuff. I don't know if anybody else had this problem, but we've been re-watching um, uh, Aqua Team Hunger Force recently and Space Kataz, those bumpers. The alien with the uh, German accent, I kept hearing his voice whenever the uh, Numer Ein was yeah. speaking. It's like, oh my God, I'll never be able to take this seriously. Number one. Just yeah. Hell- yeah, it's number one. It's just so silly. Hello. How you doing? Yeah, look, um, my name's Biff, and I'm looking for... Hold on, my groin? Well, I don't, I don't think so, but I'll ask... Do we know a Holden McGroin? No, man. No, I'm sorry, ma'am. Well, how about Oliver Close Off? How about an Oliver Close Off? <laughs> no, him neither. Why don't you leave a message and if I see him, I'll leave it for him? Just hang up. Yes, if you could just give him this message that he could please <laughs> off. Whoever you are, you can <laughs> off too. Well, that's a rude message. Oh, man. Great. Who is this? It's such a strange book. And there's almost nothing else like it in the whole canon of Star Trek literature. Yeah, the only thing that comes close is the uh, annuals that um, the that used to be produced in Britain, similar to the Doctor Who annuals. They were stories written for kids, and they were done around the same time. But this one is like an annual story written for kids, but it has some scientific. Um, believability to it as much as Star Trek ever has. I said, let's not get carried away. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, well, I mean, the pseudoscience is a little more believable. Kafard is an actual thing. And Kafard is something that, in fact, Mac Reynolds will revisit in his own works later on when he talks about um, space stations that are at the Lagrange point in um, Earth's orbit and how the colonists on those stations eventually end up having Kafard because they look up and they see the rest of the planet because there is no sky. It's like a cylindrical planet to them and that's enough to trigger it. 
and it almost brings down their whole civilization. It's fascinating. It's a good thing it didn't happen on the Enterprise, but you wonder why the series itself never addressed it. Maybe that's something Roddenberry thought would never happen in the 23rd century. Oh, heavens no. Move past it. Right. Now I'm curious about Roddenberry's critiques, because if he said, you know, make it less racist, that's a pretty good critique. Um, But, you know, we're all familiar with his infamous interference in the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation where he tried to remove all conflict from the plots by saying, no, all these problems would have been solved before. So I'm interested in what his critique was of the final work and if it was an even split between things he had a good point about and Mm. things that he was just being an ass about or what. Yeah, I haven't been able to find it, which is unfortunate because I would love to read that five-page document and find out exactly what the problems were because I'm not seeing the same problems that he probably would have seen. How he would have thought a story like this, this a book like this, could have destroyed the franchise? Yeah, that that seems to be going a little. It's too much. It's That's more humor than he approves of, maybe. Maybe. I mean, maybe so much what we think of as the humor of the original series is brought more by the cast than Rodden than the writing. Possibly, possibly that. I mean, there's not much more crazed humor in this book than there no. is in Trouble with Triple. No, no, it's mm-hmm. not. It's a little more reined in than yeah. Trouble yeah. Troubles, in fact. And the humor is mostly Kirk and Spock in a way that's very much consistent with their writing in the series. Yeah, yeah. absolutely in keeping with those characters. Maybe he thought he was just making, it was a little too on the nose, making fun of his Planet of the Week device. Possibly, possibly, though, that's just it. Even that is so much a part of the series. And obviously he had no self-consciousness about it, so that would be so subtle that I don't think he would understand that that it was a parody. No, not at all. I did. I did find it interesting that even Sulu doesn't seem to know how many decks there are in the Enterprise, <laughs> because it's it's not. Uh, I think he said eleven decks. It's not eleven yeah. decks. Maybe the saucer section, but no, I think it's twenty five. Somewhere between twenty four and twenty six. Anything else? Uh, I just have a quick note about uh, Grang's counting coup. Yes. Which is also something that comes up in the next-gen episode of uh, Code of Honor. Oh, yeah, that's right. And it's a Native American practice, so there's that weird kind of assuming that the Neolithians and their savagery are close to Native Americans and this mysticism of... When they're actually talking about Native American practices in, like, the 18th century and assuming that they are primitive the same things that have been going on for thousands of years. Right, right. But that section also could have been a hell of a lot more racist as well. Oh, there's oh, no, yeah. There's yeah. no real sort of ethnically specific description at all. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. Unlike the uh, Bavarians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which actually was kind of weird. But... Speaking of racism, what did you all think of the very end of Chapter 9? <laughs> Lieutenant Uhura's got one string missing, and she says one string left. She said, well, she stood up, folded her arms, and began doing a takeoff on the shuffling walk of a Chinese woman playing a single-stringed instrument. It's like, holy shit. Yeah. Okay, so they didn't, they got the racism against Sulu out. They got the racism against Uhura out. 
But I guess it's okay if a black woman is performing a race, uh, an Asian stereotype. Now we were still seeing that stuff on TV in like the mid nineties. Oh god, so, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh I'm, yeah, it's a different time. I'm not proud to say I barely turned a hair. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's in poor taste, but it was so much less than it could have been. Yeah, I think it was because I was so I was looking for it because Roddenberry had made such a big deal of it. So I was like, oh dear. That's got to be something we've we're worried about. I did I did want to bring up something that you know they they were talking about General Order One and and we know how this is supposed to turn into the the Prime Directive. I'm not sure I'm not quite sure how legal how correct it is for them to say you know what we're not okay with with these priests having people take LSD every day. Let's let's uh beam a cure into their water table. But not tell them what's going on. <laughs> right. Everybody with right. withdrawal right. with no explanation. <laughs> right. And it's like, is this legal? Is this Oh well it's the original series. Yeah, Who cares? It's like the yeah. reservoir, you yeah. know? Yeah. 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 And it would serve we'll long. alter their body chemistry yeah. it'll be no, great. No, no. Yeah. It's probably yeah. no worse than Kirk saying, Oh, these people are being enslaved by a computer. Let's kill the computer yeah. with the ship's phasers. I thought it was going to come back around again on the plot, but I, I was yeah. surprised they in no way returned to that planet nope. since they had not taken a person from that planet. It's either. the middle child. The middle child never gets enough attention. <laughs> Indeed. The middle, child, the middle child's strung out the whole time. <laughs> um, just a few things I'm noting in my uh, notes. It's such a rarity to see the word retarded being used in its non-derogatory sense. <sighs> And applied to a culture rather than to a person. That took me aback for a second. Then I realized, no, that's the way that word should is actually used. It's not meaning you know mentally deficient or anything. And also Spock's reference to the Vulcan god Maripol. Until I realized, oh yeah, Diane Duane's going to talk about the multiplicity of Vulcan gods there are until logic takes over. So. It all makes perfect sense. There's nothing in here that wouldn't be out of place in a later Star Trek book. Yeah. It's just the prose is definitely for kids, except for the LSD. <laughs> it's the 70s. It's fine. Well, 60s, but yeah, yeah. It's same, still. Same thing. The LSD is not portrayed positively. <laughs> this is true. This is true. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, which we're doing in publication order, simply read the book, write a review on Goodreads, and then write us a comment somewhere so that we have a choice to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may get your review read out loud here. Average rating for this book out of five stars... The totality of Western civilization literature is 3.17. Here are some sample reviews. Ray gives it four stars and says, Wow, lots of folks were stingy with the stars on this one. I just let myself enjoy it for what it was. Star Trek fiction written a hell of a long time ago with wonderful cheesy illustrations. We never did talk about the illustrations. Yeah, those illustrations are something else. It would have been okay if they had been lost to us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't necessarily add much, but... And a t- wonderfully terrible plotline. Make sure you check out the introduction. Some great 1960s Till Kirk predicted history. I stumbled across this in an antique store on vacation and enjoyed it as nerdy Trek beach reading. 
David gives it two stars, saying a better title would be Star Trek in the Arena of Space Hitler. (laughs) This is the first original Star Trek novel and is written for a younger audience. The characterizations are alright, but the plot itself is fairly bland. Even with the threat of the crew murdering each other due to cabin fever, it's beginning to amaze how Star Trek seems to attract hacks with only one idea as much as a work of genius. It's like, Jesus. Cutthroat. A little bit. And which Friends. ones is he referring to as work of genius? That's I don't know. too low a blow, too high a praise, all in the same so. sentence. Francisco also gives it two stars and says it does read as a very simple novel for children in an episodic format. The main thrust of the plot involves Kirk and crew and going on a secret mission to Horatius, blah, yada, yada, yada. Um, this allows the book to have three distinct episodes, one in each planet in a framing story about McCoy's concern with space cafard, a kind of cabin fever. After the main plot is ended, there's a little tacked on about Pet Rat, which is carrying the bubonic plague inside the Enterprise. It kind of chugs along, simply because you want to know what the next planet thing is, but I'll save you the trouble. The first Neolithia is a kind of fundamentalist paleo-diet planet, <laughs> where former Federation people want to have a simple life. Secondly, you get Mithra, where a group of elite priests control the population by making them take LSD constantly, and yes, this is a book for children. Lastly, you get Bavaria, where eugenics-obsessed people with German-sounding names have built an army of blonde zombie clones. Is it good? No. It's pretty terrible writing, but the episodic nature of the plot prevents it from being overly dull. The characterizations are not completely out of place like they are in the comics, possibly due to Desilu and Roddenberry's corrections. It's directed towards children, but plenty of the themes, from LSD to neo-Nazism, do not seem to fit that remit at all. Still, it's a historical book as the first ever Star Trek novel. Well, not quite true. Was that written in the innocent days of like 2014 between before LSD and Nazism came back? I guess so. Um, Fast read at that. Not much pain for not much gain. So, let's get your opinions. Uh, Dalton, let's start with you. Out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm going to go right down the middle, 2.5. Just... um, yeah, I enjoy I enjoyed the characterizations of the the crew that I am familiar with. Um, the story wasn't the most amazing thing to read. Um, some of the like I said earlier, the nomenclature, the naming was kind of like beating a dead horse. But it was enjoyable enough. I I did like visiting each of the planets and kind of seeing where that took me. But I feel like. At least with the first two planets, there wasn't much there. Right. We didn't really get much out of it. Like, we got Grang, and we got them saving everyone who was under LSD, but, mm. like, I don't know. It could They could have just gone to the, the third planet and spent most of the story there. True. But, True. Um, yeah, not, not the worst thing I've ever read, not the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Allison? I know a modern Trek novel would probably be something about them going back 30 years later and finding out that all the LSD civilization had become so angry and violent during their withdrawal they'll eat in each other or something like that. I actually enjoy the lack of pretense to grittiness or profundity in this one. I'd give it a 2.5, but I, I mean that nicer than Dalton does. Yeah. Yes. That's stingy for Dalton and generous uh. for me because no, there's not a lot there, but it, there's not pretense to a lot being there. It bounces along very pleasantly and I really enjoyed the character-specific humor and banter in it. 
Okay. So 2.5. All right, Danny. Uh, I give it a three. It was, it was, I agree with, with the two of you. It was slow. Uh, but then once I realized this is, this is more for kids, I think that kind of gave it a handicap there. So a three. And for me, well, I'm going to do a weird split score. Um, my score is three from the main plot and one for the Cafard plot, but only because of Mickey. I hated the framing story. I love the idea of Kafar, but I hated the idea of bringing in a goddamn mouse to try to solve it. A rat. I don't care what the (laughs) fuck species it was. I hated it. Um, Apart from that, the name thought. It it really was. I was terribly offended by it. Well, I'm not not questioning your rating. (laughs) Three is quite is quite sufficient. You're incensed. I am incensed. I am incensed, mainly because, you know, if this were written for a five-year-old, then perhaps that would be quite fun. For a 10-year-old, sure. For a 15-year-old, fine. For a 47-year-old, no, not quite so much. So, Not everything's for you, Tony. I know that. I'm aware, which is why it's my rating. Thank you so much. (laughs) Jesus, God. Set phasers on kill. Oh, wow. All right. I'll show myself out. All right. Good. So, thank you, guys. (laughs) 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 Thank you, guys. And thank you, fellow Starfleet cadets, for giving us your valuable time. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here and would like to hear more of it, since this was, after all, our April Fool's episode and you have indeed been listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast and not the Star Trek Book Club podcast, tell us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, all one word with no spaces, or tweet us. We're at DWTargetBC, and subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and intermittently on Podbean. If all else fails you, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com and let us know if you'd like to hear more of this sort of podcast and me threatening Allison's life. Thank you very much for listening. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your voyages. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye. Fascinating is the word I use for the unexpected. In this case, I should think interesting would suffice.